Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Date listeners, and welcome to another episode of our local news and interview podcast. This is episode 45, and I'm Josh Popachak, your host for No Rain Date, and of course the publisher of Sock and Source, here with the headlines for the week ending March 13th, 2021. The weather has been great this week. Can't complain on that front if you're into the warmer temperatures, which I think everybody is right now. It's been mild with highs even in the 70s. That's in the process of changing a little bit, but uh, clearly it won't be too long before spring is here in full effect. So hopefully that's boosted everybody's mood a little bit this week and put a spring in your step. Unfortunately, we did have some bad news, some tragic news that we had to report on earlier in the week, and that is regarding a horrific fatal accident that occurred on Lanark Road in Center Valley. That accident happened on the evening of March 6th, Saturday, March 6th, around 8.45 p.m. A vehicle that was carrying four young adults, all of them connected to DeSales University, which is just a couple miles away from the accident scene, for unknown reasons, crashed into a large pine tree alongside the road. This is near West Hopewell Road, if you're familiar with the area, and caught fire. Tragically, as I said, three young adults were killed in the accident. A fourth person, senior at DeSales, was seriously hurt, but it does sound like he's going to survive. I'm sure the investigators in the crash, once he is well enough, will be wanting to talk to him about what was happening just prior to the accident because it was a single vehicle accident. The road, uh, the weather conditions rather, were not bad at the time, and I believe it was above freezing, so it doesn't seem likely that ice might have been a factor, but obviously it's still under investigation The coroner's office performed autopsies on the three victims earlier in the week, and it will probably be weeks before toxicology tests come back, and that may play a role in determining what caused this accident. But in the meantime, as I said, the DeSales campus, the entire community, has been in mourning due to this loss. Two of the passengers in the car, or the occupants rather, were senior members of the DeSales baseball team. One of those men is the survivor that I referenced. His name is Brandon DiCiaccio. He's a senior sport and exercise physiology major. The three members of the DeSales community who were killed in the accident are Sean Hansarek, who is also a senior sport and exercise physiology major, 2019 DeSales graduate Nicholas White, and 2020 DeSales graduate Emily Katner. 
None of the four were from the Saucon Valley area or even really the Lehigh Valley, but all of them are from like eastern Pennsylvania and central New Jersey, Philadelphia area. So generally from the greater Philadelphia area. I believe Emily Katner is from Carbon County originally. And of course, our thoughts and prayers go out to their family members, their friends, as they deal with this unimaginable loss. I know GoFundMe campaigns have been established for at least two of the victims' families. So if you search on GoFundMe by their names, you should be able to find find those. A candlelight vigil was held the other evening on the DeSales campus. We did not cover that. It was my understanding that the vigil was a closed vigil for the DeSales community and out of respect for the decision to keep it a private event. We did not attempt to cover it. I should add that stories of this nature are inherently very difficult to cover. You always wonder if you got it right. We're talking about an accident that claimed three people's lives and and we have to balance the need for the public to know quickly what's going on with sensitivity, privacy concerns, and compassion. And I always attempt to do that. I think we did a good job. In this case, we did the best job that we could. We were one of the first outlets, if not the first, to report on this accident, thanks to a source who lives across the street from the accident scene who provided me with photos and updates via text messaging as the situation unfolded. At first, I obviously had no idea that this was a triple fatal accident. I have not covered a triple fatal accident in this area in the past 15 years. So they're exceedingly rare, thank goodness. It was a difficult night and and certainly an intense night. I'm sure that's true for everybody who responded. Dozens and dozens of local volunteer firefighters, police officers, ambulance crews rushed to the scene, hoping I'm sure that they could save everybody and what they had to witness, I'm sure, was absolutely awful. And, and that's just one of the sacrifices that they make to serve our community. So we're so grateful to them for that. And certainly that's not a job that anyone wants, but we need them to do, to do it. And certainly we've, we've had Upper Saucon firefighters as guests on No Rain Date. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode from just a couple months ago, it was around the holidays, and it was very enlightening conversation we had with with two members of the company, including our friend Eric Bartos. I think many people have been listening to that in the week since the accident occurred and learning more about what they do. And fortunately, like I said, this is a rare occurrence, and more often than not, they're responding to, you know, smoke alarms and relatively minor events, but when something terrible happens on a large scale, it is reassuring to know that our first responders are there and they're going to they're going to be there no matter what what the situation. So of course we will continue to cover this story as it evolves and continue to do so as sensitively as possible, balancing the need to provide you with information with 
being respectful towards the families and, and the entire DeSales community. I believe there's counseling available for individuals affected by this loss through DeSales. So you may want to visit the DeSales website for more information on that. And as I said, the GoFundMe campaigns are active for at least two families. In other news, a more upbeat kind of story, we are excited to help share the news that the Bethlehem Food Co-op has finally announced their location, which is a huge step towards their opening if you've been following the co-op's progress. Late last year, actually, I think it was November, not long after we rebooted No Rain Day, we were excited to welcome co-op board member Carol Ritter on the show. And Carol is just a wealth of information about the history of the co-op organization, which goes back probably close to 10 years approaching that. They've been looking for a property since 2017. And board chairman Carrie Allen announced on a Zoom call on Friday evening that the selected property is at 250 East Broad Street, which is in essentially Center City, North Bethlehem. It's in between Linden and High Streets on the south side of Broad Street across from Connell Funeral Home. If you're familiar with that area, I am because I'm a Bethlehem native. I grew up not too far from there on, well, not too far on either side of the river. If you are familiar with this property, there's a a one-story building on it. It's kind of an interesting looking building. It has like a limestone sort of facade, huge glass windows. I want to say it might have been an a car dealership, like in the very early days of cars. It kind of has that look to it. That's on part of the property. The other part of the property is a paved parking area. However, the entire property is going to be redeveloped with a four-story mixed-use building constructed on it. That was part of the announcement that was made Friday. The co-op will occupy the first floor of the building and there will be apartments above. There will be a parking area. There will be a cafe inside the co-op, a bike rack, of course, because they want to encourage um, people to walk there. It is in a very walkable area, which is great for residents of the north side. Why the north side versus the south side? I think that was a good question. It was addressed during the Zoom call that I was on, and one reason stated was that the north side has fewer grocery stores than the south side, which is true. However, just days ago, it was announced that the south side is actually losing one of their grocery stores, Ahart's, which is on Montclair Avenue at Broadway, formerly a food lane. There's been a grocery store there my entire life. They have announced that they are closing that store, and Ahart's is like an IGA. It's a small grocery store, but Certainly, it's going to have a negative impact on the people that have no transportation of their own and walk there. The other grocery store is Seatown, which is also a smaller store in terms of footprint and in terms of the number of stores that are around. That's on 3rd Street. Certainly, challenges remain in terms of providing access to fresh food in the urban areas and not just in Bethlehem. I am certainly an opponent of food deserts, which are, you know, areas 
in which it's difficult for residents to obtain fresh produce. There may be a, an abundance of food outlets, but they may be selling junk food. You know, corner stores are selling sugar sweetened beverages and uh, salty snacks and, you know, fast food restaurants. So certainly there's nothing wrong with businesses like that, but communities, all communities need a balance of outlets. And over the past 50 years or so, large supermarkets have tended to open on the perimeters of cities in the suburbs because land was cheaper there. They could build bigger stores and probably the taxes were lower. There's a variety of issues related to that, but the outcome has been that healthy food options have disappeared from centralized urban locations. And the co-op, one of their main goals is to return that option to the city of Bethlehem. And that's why one of the reasons I decided to become a member because I believe in that accessibility and certainly I, I hope our listeners will consider joining. They need to continue to add members. Currently, there are nearly 800 member households that are part of the co-op. To join, uh, you commit to donate $300, which essentially buys you a share in the institution. It's not a donation. It's a share of the organization. But that's all you pay lifetime, and you can spread the payments out over a year. So it's something like $25 a month, which I would think for a lot of people is pretty manageable. When the store does open, then, of course, you'll get a discount on items that you buy there. It will be open to anybody, but the members are sort of like the the in crowd, you could say, uh, at a co-op. I should add that years ago when I was growing up on the south side, my dad managed what I would call the original Bethlehem Food Co-op. It was also known as the Bethlehem Food Co-op. And this was in the 70s and into the 80s. It was located first on West 4th Street, next to where the Tally Ho is now. Actually, it had to move when Tally Ho expanded, and then it was on Wyandotte Street in the 400 block for a few years after that. Long story on that one. If you ever want to know about it, shoot me an email. <laughs> um, but but it didn't work out, and, and that co-op ceased to exist about 35, no, probably about 32 years ago. So talked to my dad, who was closely involved in managing it, running it for a number of years about the new Bethlehem co-op and I think times have changed and and people have evolved and are a little more appreciative maybe of something like this than than they used to be the original co-op was an outgrowth of the 60s and 70s when people were searching for alternatives and embracing alternative lifestyles and then I think in the 80s a lot of that sort of gave way to more conventional thinking and conformity and co-ops have survived in in very urban areas like Philadelphia, Weaver's Way. Some of you may be familiar with that one, but not in the numbers that would allow them to thrive in a city as small as Bethlehem. But I believe that time has come. Certainly there are hundreds of others who do too, and uh, I'm excited to support them and to continue to provide updates on 
the progress. They are about to launch a $1.7 million capital campaign, which will fund the actual opening of the store. It's not going to be, you know, in the near future because, first of all, the building hasn't even been constructed yet. So the opening date will be determined by the pace at which funds are raised. New members are joining, and they want to reach 1,200, I believe, by the time they open, and also, obviously, the construction of the building. So there's a lot to keep tabs on there, but we'll be doing that. And we would love to welcome Carol or somebody else from the co-op on No Rain Date once again, once there are more milestones and, and we can cheer them on. In police news, we have a couple of scam alerts that we shared this week that were passed on to us by local police departments. One was from Pennsylvania State Police at Dublin, who shared a report about a Kintnersville man who lost $8,200 when he followed the instructions of a apparently a virus that, that he downloaded on his computer, which told him to contact quote-unquote Microsoft. Of course, he did not actually talk to somebody at Microsoft, but the person he talked to convinced him to send nearly $10,000 in gift cards to him to fix his computer, I guess. And then eventually the man realized it was a scam. And unfortunately, this is a common story. A similar report was shared by Lower Saucon Township Police, only in that case, the issue was someone claiming that they were from Amazon. And once again, they wanted uh, gift cards. Any Anytime anybody tells you to pay them in gift cards, that's a scam. <laughs> and the police have emphasized that many, many times. I, unfortunately, I think the word is not getting to the people who need to know that, uh, which is often like elderly people who may not have the tech familiarity that, that others do or the um, ability to sort of mentally screen out suspicious sounding situations. So if you have a family member that is vulnerable in that way, I would encourage you to talk to them about this type of thing. I think due to the economy, uh, there may be more scams happening than there were, say, a year ago. So it doesn't hurt to have that conversation with a parent, a grandparent. Share our stories with them. That's what they're there for. They're there for public safety information. And so I would love to know that that they helped just one person avoid a scam. Uh, That would be fantastic. And in conclusion to this week's News Roundup, I want to share a couple of good news stories. We're going to try and do this every week. People sometimes tell me there's never any good news on Sock and Source and I want to reinforce the fact that we do share good news. You just might not be seeing it or you might not be remembering it because the way our brains work is that the bad news tends to sort of stay in the front and the good news is more easily forgotten and I'd love to know why that is the case. But in this case this week we had Two stories about young gentlemen from the area who are inspiring us and inspiring their families and friends for different reasons. The first story is about a 15-year-old from Bethlehem, Noah Caustic, who is celebrating recovery from a very rare medical condition that he suffered approximately a year ago. I had never heard of this. It's called WPW or Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, and it affects uh, the heart 
Noah's life was in danger because he had too many electrical impulses going through his heart, essentially, and uh, that caused him to go into convulsions, and he required emergency treatment at the brand new PICU at St. Luke's in Bethlehem. The PICU is the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit that opened in February 2020, just before the coronavirus pandemic began. I was happy to be there that day to uh, tour the, the new PICU and take pictures. And Noah is one of many local children and teenagers whose lives have been saved in some cases. In his case, his life was saved thanks to the fantastic care he received at St. Luke's. So his family is obviously grateful for that. And it's a wonderful story that he is 100% well today and celebrating and doing the, the normal things that a teenager does. Coincidentally, our other story is also about a 15-year-old, Mike Morris, who's from Hellertown. And Mike's mom was kind enough to share this update with us. Mike celebrated his birthday this week. Happy birthday, Mike. And he did it in a special way. His mom, Shannon, explained to us that he is very focused on trains. Mike is somebody who is on the autism spectrum, and he has an incredible love of trains an incredible knowledge of them and just this hunger for more information about them led him to discover that there's actually a historic roundhouse just outside Hellertown on the property of Crush Crete, which is on Silvex Road in Bethlehem. Crush Crete is a concrete and asphalt shingle recycling business. And if you're familiar with the area, it's sort of an, an industrial area near the park and ride just off 78. Anyway, over 150 years ago, that was a major rail hub of activity, and a rail line ran along the Saucon Creek, and that's why the Roundhouse was built there back in 1870 by the Reading Railroad. You can sort of see it from the road a little bit. It's a little concealed because of the way the topography is there, but how cool is it that there's still an existing building that was part of the railroad and it's actually being used by Crush Creek as part of their operation there. So of course it's normally closed to the public. However, Shannon reached out to the company, explained Mike's love of trains to them and they were kind enough to allow them to visit and go inside the roundhouse, get some incredible pictures and then when they stopped by the office on the way out of there, Linda, the office manager, had prepared a birthday gift bag for Mike with photos and, you know, a hat, candy, just went above and beyond. And I think that's awesome. I tip my hat to Crush Creek for doing that. And thank you again, Shannon, for sharing that story with us. If you have a story like that, I'd love to hear it. As long as it's local, we will certainly consider sharing it with the community because we all want to and need to hear more news like that. My email is josh at sawconsource.com. That's usually the best way to reach me. And yeah, let's let's share more good news together. Everybody wants to hear it. That's the news roundup for the week ending March 13th, 2021. Here at Sock and Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. 
a large part of that is a public service. And we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. It's my pleasure this week on No Rain Date to welcome a candidate for district judge in Bethlehem and Fountain Hill, Van A. Scott Sr. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Josh. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Talking Valley Source and your No Rain Date podcast for having me on tonight. Real quick, I just want to give my sincere condolences to the families of the DeSales University students that were tragically killed and the uh, one student that was seriously injured last Saturday. As you know, I'm a DeSales alumni and uh, my heart goes out to them. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. We've been covering that story, of course, and it is a terrible tragedy for the school and the community. And I, I echo your, your sentiment. I mean, I, I didn't know any of the people involved personally, but I'm very sorry for the families involved and and it is a, a close-knit school, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that and, and your your history with the sales in a little bit. But I, I wanted to start sort of at the beginning. You are a Bethlehem native and spent a considerable amount of your career as a member of the Bethlehem Police Department. After retirement, you transitioned to doing other things. But talk a little bit about, you know, growing up and what led you to a career in law enforcement? I think the first question I'm, I'm gonna say that is I'm everything I should not be. And the reason why I say that, you'll understand at the end of this podcast why I say that. So I was born and raised in the South side of Bethlehem. I attended Fountain Hill Elementary. As a matter of fact, I was one of the first students that actually started my elementary years at Fountain Hill Elementary. So uh, even though I resided maybe four blocks from the Fountain Hill border, I had a lot of Fountain Hill friends and I still have a lot of friends who reside in Fountain Hill. I consider myself lucky, very lucky. Things could have ended up differently. You'll see I was blessed with a good career, great opportunities. I've been personally blessed with a daughter, 
who is a mother of three of my grandchildren. In addition, I have a son and his husband, they have adopted a child. Early, I was raised by a single mother who uh, brought up four children on her own. She instilled uh, toughness, independence, self-respect, and kindness, compassion, and the most thing that she told all of us as children, never, never give up. So growing up without a father figure in my life could have been very tough, but I'll tell you, the love I had surrounding me as a teenager, as a adolescent, I was got involved with the Bethlehem Boys Club and the Girls Club very early. Lehigh University, if it wasn't for so many of the students who volunteered their time to tutor myself and other kids at my age, they held Christmas parties, they allowed us access to the gym, the swimming pool, many educators that I consider motherly and fatherly figures that I, I definitely would not be where I am right now if it wasn't for them. And actually, because of the Lehigh University and their swimming program, as a teenager, I actually became a certified lifeguard working for the city that I love, Bethlehem. So I was born and raised in here in Bethlehem on the south side, and I now reside for over 23 years on the west side. Great. Well, I can relate to your story because I also grew up on the south side, on the Bethlehem side of the Fountain Hill line, but went to Fountain Hill Elementary School and didn't have the, the single parent household, but, but definitely had some of those same experiences as you did. And it's, a, it's an area that's, that's always close to my heart. And, and obviously I live in Fountain Hill now, so it continues to be an important area for me. And, and so it sounds like your, your mother was a big role model for you. And also, like you said, the students who almost acted like big brothers, big sisters in a way, that's so important, I would imagine, in terms of development. And then you went to high school, and then you entered the military service after high school, or what was the progression well, of well, events? Technically, I, I went to high school, but I started a family at a young age, so I actually got my GED after my military service. I didn't finish high school. I entered the Army, the U.S. Army Reserves and the National Guard. I got my GED and then I actually uh, started working as a correctional officer at Lehigh County Prison for several years. I knew I wanted to uh, continue at that time a law enforcement career. So I was very, very lucky to be appointed as a city of Bethlehem Police Department as a patrolman. So, you know, I wanted to always give back because I knew as a child that I had so much, so many people around me that loved me, that cared about me. Even my mother who worked two jobs wasn't home all the time, but there was always somebody, some type, um, some type of figure there to basically keep us in line and, and make sure that we did the right thing. Thanks. So just talking about the, if you wanted me to talk about the Bethlehem Police Department, is obviously a really big part of my life. I knew that patrol was very important uh, to be on patrol because you learn everything. And I think it was very good that I actually was a correctional officer because I learned more things in there. And when I came out, again, it was more of an understanding of what you know, policing and law enforcement deals with. So I wasn't really on patrol long. I got the opportunity to work with the Bethlehem Housing Authority as a drug elimination officer. Our substation is actually still there now. Never forget it, 1114 Marvine Street. That's a Pembroke Marvine housing development where we're right into inside the housing development. So a crazy story. My very first day walking around and, you know, I wanted to get to know the residents and I came upon a, a very young a boy maybe around eight or nine years old and I shook his hand and he said hey I want to be just like my dad and I asked him 
confidingly, you know, what does your dad do? He goes, he's in jail. That, that broke my heart. Yeah. That broke my heart. And then I knew at that time that I was in the right place. I'm getting like, hairs are standing on my arms right now just thinking about that story because I knew I was at the right place in my career and I knew that I wanted to make a difference. So yeah. I work closely with the Northeast Ministries, which is currently called the Northeast Community Center. And they had a special mission, and that mission meant a lot to me. And their mission was basically to assist the residents in that community with their basic needs and to empower them in obtaining their highest potential. We had Christmas parties. We had Easter egg hunts. We gave out Thanksgiving dinners. We did clothing drives. I worked very closely with Stevie Gobble. He was a very well-known member in the community that worked for the ministries for many years. He unexpectedly died, I want to say, maybe seven, eight years ago. We held cookouts for the kids. We, we had the parents involved. So it was a very well-deserving job that I was a part of. You know, people see police officers as basically you look at TV and, you know, the things that they see. But, you know, I don't know if every, everybody should know that, you know, only 5% of what we did as officers actually make, we made arrests. Mm -hmm. You know, as police officers, basically we were customer service representatives, we served the community, we were locksmiths, we were counselors at times, we were mother and father figures, psychiatrists, I mean I could keep going on, on and on what we actually did. You know, just imagine, you know, going to a scene where I had to tell a family member that their, their one of their family members was, you know, had passed away. So it's mm -hmm. a very, very important position in the job to deal with dealing with young people and also, you know, dealing with a lot of elderly people and then getting them to the right services that they needed. You know, there is an article in uh, Morning Call that I saved some articles, some very positive articles, and I actually uh, saved the Duck family from a sewer drain, you know. Huh. A police officer gets to tell that story. Right. That was actually inside the Marvin, Marvin Pembroke housing development area. Wow. That's that's awesome. I mean, I'm a huge animal lover, so anything like anything like that is is I think people can really relate to that. And yeah, it sounds like you you were really out there in the community on the front lines of, you know, like you said, do, do wearing a lot of hats and it sounds like that was something that that you enjoyed doing, you know, helping the community in that in that regard. Oh, it, it was very humbling. It was it was a very important position. You know, it wasn't all about, you know, making arrests and, you know, locking people up. It was more about helping people and getting them to the right area they needed to do and, you know, stuff like that, you know. So I knew that I still was on a mission and there was an opportunity to become a school resource officer at East Hills Middle School. And while I was there, I taught the D.A.R.E. program to sixth grade students and the GREAT program. A lot of people aren't familiar with the GREAT program, but that was great gang resistance education and training. Mm -hmm. And I also taught at St. Anne's Catholic School to those sixth graders. So while I was in that environment, I knew that this was the way to go because I remember as a child, as a teenager, if it wasn't for educators, again, that surrounded me with love and compassion and said, don't give up, I knew that this is, I was going to continue this mission and I knew I, sooner or later I wanted to be, get involved in teaching. So mm -hmm. I got the opportunity to go to Liberty High School. There's a story that I teamed up with the, the late, now Honorable Magistrate District Judge Wayne Morrow. We came up, we came up with a program. I thought that the minor offenses that we were charging or I was charging some of the students at Liberty 
and they would go in front of the magistrate and they would pay a fine and that's it. And I thought that, you know, that fine wasn't being paid by the students. I thought it wasn't fair to the parents that they're hardworking, especially a single mother like mine, and they come home and their, their child gets in trouble for something minor that makes them have to pay a fine anywhere from 300 to 500 dollars which is a lot of money mm -hmm. and i basically said you know it's not fair to do that so what what can we do to try to fix this problem first of all and kill two birds with one stone so basically we came up with a plan to take the liberty high school students the ones that were charged and get them out on a saturday morning at seven o'clock we called it the liberty high school cleanup i was part of the liberty high school block watch so we got them out, got them bags, got them gloves, and they started cleaning up. There was pizza boxes and cans and garbage and everywhere around the neighborhood. And you know what? Initially, these students weren't happy with me because they would tell me, we didn't do this. Why are we cleaning this up? I said, well, in lieu of you playing that fine and you being not found guilty, this is probably the best way to go. And it's mm -hmm. not fair to your parents are paying your fine. And really, I don't think you're learning a lesson. So as they were cleaning the garbage up, you would be amazed that the residents that would come out of the houses and greet these students, because we didn't announce this, so these, these residents didn't know what was going on. They came out, it was a hot morning, I mean, at afternoon, and they came out, they offered drinks, and they offered stuff to eat. And these students were like amazed that, you know, they learned two lessons that day, you know? The first lesson basically is that, you know, cleaning up the neighborhood was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I told them, look around, look at the garbage, who do you think's throwing the garbage down here? And they said, yeah, it's probably the Liberty High School kids. And I said, absolutely. And I said, look what you did to the neighborhood. You're cleaning it up. Look at what the residents are doing. And you know what? The next time you're walking with your friend to school and one of your buddies throws something down on the ground where there's garbage cans everywhere, you might want to tell them to pick it up because there's a nice lady there that just offered me something to drink and something to eat while I was cleaning up her neighborhood. So I thought that was a really good thing. And it stopped the parents from paying that fine and having to worry about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a great example of creatively dealing with a situation that could just be punitive, but you, you sort of tried to make it a teachable experience for the kids, and, and it worked. Um, and you know what? By the end of the day, honestly, the students learned a lesson. They were like, wow, I can't believe how nice these people were to me that didn't even know me. I'm just a Liberty High School kid and they come out and they're offering me drink, something to drink, something to eat. And basically, you know, they didn't have to do that. So it was a lesson to learn. So I think, and I know when I become magistrate, I'm gonna continue that vision with the, with the students. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Cause certainly young people, yeah, are a significant number of the people that come before the court and you want to I guess, find a balance between, you know, punishment and reform. Although it seems like in recent years, do you feel like the courts are, we hear all different kinds of mixed, you know, opinions in the public anyway, in the public realm that the courts are too lenient. You don't normally hear that they're too strict as far as doling out punishment. How would you, you know, respond to somebody who's going to say, well, you know, I think you should just throw the book at those kids. You know, they, you know, they, they did the crime, they should do the time, you know, and, and that seems to be a, a, a popular sentiment among some people. 
Well, there, there, there is, there is discretion. There was a lot of discretion as a police officer, and there's a lot of discretion when you become a magistrate. And you know what? You got to look at each and every scenario, and you got to judge it. And as long as you're fair, as long as you're impartial, and you look at the scenario, I mean, you're going to have bad kids out there. You're going to have bad adults out there. You're going to have very good kids. You're going to have very good adults that get in trouble. People make mistakes. There's consequences to that to those mistakes, and it's up to the magistrate to basically even the level there. So it depends on the situation. It depends every single thing that comes in front of you. You're going to just make that decision, you know, and it's going to be based on facts. It's going to be based on everything that you look at. It's a whole total picture. It's not one thing. It could be three things. You know what's going on in the juvenile or the adult's life. So it depends on what you're looking at here and basing on that on that type of situation. Now there are some things that, as a discretion, as a, as a magistrate, you're not going to be able to do because there are certain guidelines that you have to go by. Mm-hmm. Right, of course. The legal system has you know many mandatory or guidelines, rather, in place as far as sentencing. Your campaign signs, I saw a Facebook post that you recently had campaign signs made, and the signs say, vote for equal justice, vote for Van Scott. I mean, I think that's a very powerful kind of statement to have on the sign. And I was just curious, like, what fed into that that messaging, the equal justice part of the message? Well, you know what? I did a little research. I'm kind of a research guy. And basically, I looked at a research. It's an analytical research. It's a two-year group study. And I wanted to look at what, what defined the qualities of a good judge. And basically, this is basically, I'm, I'm going to read this now to you exactly what a good judge is under these these two-year study these standards it says a good judge could be his judicial temperament intelligence ethics courage integrity experience and education suitability to workload continuing legal education ability to communicate including listening civic and professional responsibility health and character so I believe I meet all of those qualities. So when I said equal justice for all, I meant that all of that inside what I just read to you is very important when we talk about equal justice. Everybody gets equal justice. I don't care who you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care anything at all other than that person that's in front of me and dealing with that situation and not looking at anybody else, just looking at what's in front of me. I think that absolutely makes sense. Just to follow up on that, I would ask, you know, in a situation where you are presented with a case and, you know, the you obviously know many of the Bethlehem police officials and officers from your time spent on the police force, the fact that you know them, does that have any bearing on your ability to be impartial, even if it's like a subconscious type of thought process? Well, the answer to that is when I was an officer and I was a training officer, a field training officer, and I used to have other officers and I used to train other officers and we went to courtrooms and basically I should tell the officers, listen, you go by the law, you do the right thing, you're not going to win every case and you're not going to lose every case. But it's basically as long as you did, you thought you did the right thing and you do what you have to do, it is based on the judge. You are not there to punish. You're there to basically apply the law and send the law to the magistrate. So me, we're going to be dealing with officers 95% of the time because 95% of the time you're going to be dealing with police officers and lawyers. 
basically that's what you're going to be dealing with. So uh, there's going to be officers that aren't going to be happy with my decisions, but you know, it's not going to matter whether they're an officer or they're a citizen or they're a lawyer or they're a defense lawyer or they're a district attorney. What's fair is fair. I'm going to apply that to the law with equal justice and equality and just basically doing the right thing based on the rules and the Constitution of Pennsylvania and basically what we're supposed to do. Right. As far as your current employment, you are an adjunct faculty member at DeSales and you also teach at Lehigh Carbon Technical Institute. Is that right? It's, it's LCTI, Lehigh Career Technology. Sorry, LCTI. Technical Institute. Uh, basically, after 21 years, obviously, I retired. I, I was actually about a year and a half, I was promoted to detective sergeant for the criminal investigations unit. You couldn't be a resource officer while you were a supervisor. So when I got promoted, I was there for about a year and a half, but I knew that, you know, I didn't really want to be a police officer forever. I knew that I still had a vision. I still wanted to do more things in my life. And I retired at 21 years and I was fairly young. So I went back, I got my master's degree at, at St. Joseph University. I was teaching at the sales while I was still in the police department. And I got lucky to land a job at my career at Lehigh Career Technical Institute. Now I teach, I don't know if anybody knows, that's the Lehigh County Votech. They don't mm. call it Votech anymore, they call it CTE, which is Career Technical Education. I teach through William Allen, Zeroff, Parkland, Whitehall, Emmaus, Catasauqua. You know, these students come from all walks of life. They come from rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, LGBTQ, and so on. So I think it's really, again, I'm in that environment that I always wanted to be in. I wanted to make a difference and show these kids that you can be somebody. Don't give up. There is dual enrollment. Some of my students, some of my Allen students, some of my Zero students, they are actually going to L-Tri-C right across the street from our school, and they're obtaining college courses prior to even graduating from LCTI. Hmm. And some of them may go on to the sales from there, I'm sure, right down the road. Absolutely. And, and I, being in law enforcement, I can tell you probably 80% of my students, they don't want to be police officers. They want to be psychiatrists. They want to be psychologists. They want to get into forensics. Mm-hmm. They want to get into a lot of stuff. So a lot of them don't want to be police officers. They would rather, they want to branch out. Some of them do. Some of them are in the military, are going to the military. I have three, uh, four students right now. They're actually, one is going to Marines. I think two are going to the Navy and one's going to the Air Force. So when you graduate from LCTI, not only you get a certificate and you have a four-year criminal justice, per se, degree under your belt at LCTI, but you're also graduating from your home school. And getting into law enforcement, any kind of federal job or any kind of municipal or state job that's dealing with law enforcement, you mainly have to be 21 years old. So doing that dual enrollment, getting them involved in LC, L-Tri-C, they love our students because what we teach them, I teach the same textbook at LCTI that I do my first year students at the Sales University. So hmm. they're actually learning a college textbook. Do you think that, I mean, years ago, police officer with a college degree was probably somewhat unusual. It's certainly not as unusual anymore. Do you see that that trend continuing to where it's, you know, maybe like a requirement that you have to have a, a higher education degree to serve in law enforcement? Or what are the pros and cons to to that? 
Well, I, I can tell you that you don't need a college degree to be a police officer, but majority of police departments, you have to at least have two years under your belt. Mm-hmm. So, which is really positive for my LCTI students because they're taking college credits already. But you have to have most of the, the police departments and federal, well, all federal departments you need a four-year degree. doesn't even have to be criminal justice. It has to be a four-year degree. Most police departments, you have to have a two-year degree, which is an associate's degree. I think that's going to be continuing because I think what's happening now is that, you know, the students need to learn communication skills. There's more training, diversity, cultural, all kind of ethics, all kind of stuff that we had little bits and pieces when we, when I was younger as a, as a police officer, but I took advantage of all those things. I have a resume and I'm not trying to brag here, but I was taught that all training, get it. If it's there, take it and do it and just have it. And I have a slew of trainings and certificates under my belt that actually will assist me as a magistrate in West Bethlehem and Fountain Hill. Right, and I'm just gonna mention at this point that you have a lot of that information on your website, which is Van A. Scott Senior for MDJ.org, and there's an about page and constituents can certainly click on that and you have your education as one section, professional development, career history, affiliations and memberships, and it's a very lengthy list, <laughs> certainly. So so that's, that's great that you have that information out there for everybody to access. As far as, you know, following up on, on what we, ju- we were just talking about, if you are elected, though, would, do you plan to continue teaching at LCTI? And if so, how will you juggle, you know, being a judge with those responsibilities? No, I already spoke to administration about that, and they know that if I get the position, I'm definitely going to step down. I think the magistrate's job is a full-time job. I probably will still take a course or two and teach at the sales. The majority now I've been teaching. I used to go in class, but now I'm teaching online, so it's a little easier to teach online. I still enjoy that at the sales and just keeping that open communication with them. And you know what? I have some students that I've had that, you know, that remember me and have wished me well and looked me up in my Facebook page and my website. And basically they said, hey, do you remember me? Some high school students too that actually graduated from LCTI have, have reached out. Hmm. Yeah. Facebook is certainly a great, a great definitely, tool. It's definitely a full-time position. Yeah. The magistrate's position is definitely full-time. So there's not going to be any part-time involved in that. It's a definitely a 40-hour a week more than a 40-hour week plus a full-time position. My whole background is I I don't have any problem working the hours that needs to be done to get the job done and get it done correctly. Right, right. As far as having an open court, an accessible court, what will your priorities be to ensure that that everybody has equal access to the courts as far as like whether they're you know maybe a non non english speakers because without equal access you can't really have equal justice do you have any specific thoughts about that i know that when i was still working uh, as a police officer there is translators and it is required by law to have a translator so there's not going to be anybody that steps in my courtroom that does not understand the rules and regulations are their rules are 
uh, their criminal affidavit or their whatever they have in front of them, they're going to understand it, whether it's Spanish, Asian, you know, we have an influx because of the, the casino. So, I mean, that was actually was a situation when Sands first came in because, you know, the Chinese dialect is, is very, very intense. There's a lot of different dialects. So there is hotlines. There is actually interpreters that are on 24-hour duty whenever the, the time would happen if they need some kind of translator to, to be available. So I can guarantee you that I would never, ever send any person through my the court system, not knowing their charges or what was going on, whether it's traffic, whether it's a summary offense, whether it's a misdemeanor, or whether it's a felony. You know, they have to understand their rights. And it's called due process. Right. The due process of the law is basically understanding their whole due process. It's not only just taking them there and throwing them in jail and locking up and throwing away the key. They have due process. And I strongly emphasize due process to my students. As a matter of fact, right now, I'm teaching my level threes, which is the 11th graders and the level fours of search and seizure, the Fourth Amendment. My students know every single amendment that's pertinent within law enforcement. And the most important amendment in law enforcement is the Fourth Amendment, which includes the search and seizure and their due process, their Miranda right, everything that has to deal with the law. So I think that out of the candidate that are running for this position, I am definitely, without a doubt, the most experienced and the most educated when it comes to that. Yeah, you certainly have a very extensive background in law enforcement and dealing with legal proceedings. That would make sense. I also teach, I mean, I teach intro to criminal justice, but I also have taught criminal law and criminal procedure. And those are courses usually taught by a lawyer because it's more very well detailed into the history and the amendments and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So I'm very versed in that, and the sales had enough confidence in me to teach those courses. I also taught a master's course that I developed on my own, a graduate course in juvenile justice. So I'm very versed in the juvenile laws. My level two students who are, who are 10th graders are learning juvenile law right now there's a big difference between the juveniles and adult laws. And that will, that will be, well, I will be able to bring into my courtroom also when I'm dealing with the juveniles and I'm dealing with the, uh, the adults separately. And also teaching and the officers that do come in because there are a lot of officers that come in that, you know, are not experienced as much as I am now because they're brand new. And some of those officers are actually the prosecutors, the case itself. You know, I prosecuted many, many hearings in front of the magistrate because you don't get a, a district attorney unless it's a serious charge. So technically, almost every charge that comes in there, minor offenses, summary offenses, traffic offenses, some civil law, unless it's a very serious charge, you can't even get a district attorney in there. So the officer plays their own lawyer when they're inside that courtroom. One other thing I wanted to touch on concerns sort of national national events over the past year. Obviously, the death of George Floyd was a historic event in the nation's history, and it did propel protests against police and other other events followed that. Do you think that due to that event and others in the past year that people will be able to judge you, you know, fairly, you know, when it, or, you know, is prejudging the police an issue 
now for some people because of of the news media coverage of of things like George Floyd and does that concern you at all? Well, it, it could become an issue, but I basically the training and hiring and weeding out. Listen, I tell my students, there's bad parents, there's good parents, there's bad teachers, there's good teachers, there's bad lawyers, there's good lawyers. So there's bad police officers, there's good police officers. But I can tell you, I can honestly be and, and honestly tell you, being around this environment, being around policing, I've met probably 99.9% of the police officers that I've known are good police officers and they do the right thing. They are very impartial and they're very unbiased and there's basically, that's their responsibility. I didn't take the job as a police officer to punish people. I took the job because I wanted to help people. And again, 5% of all policing is arresting. So yeah, there's gonna be, you know, the media plays a certain point of the situation with that, but you know, I think that that's not gonna be a problem at all. It's, it's basically the hiring and training and getting these officers more training and getting them to, to the right direction and getting them to understand the feelings of the public and the feelings of people who come in there is very important. The primary election is, is May 18th, and that's just a couple months away now. As far as the election itself, are you going to be on both Republican and Democratic ballots or one or the other? You can cross-file. I wasn't sure like what your filing status was. Right. I'm, I'm a registered Democrat, regardless of, you know, any of the party affiliates, basically, you know, we have to be nonpartisan. It's kind of a shame that this is actually a political position because I think that it should be actually, you know, not, not political, but, you know, following the law and being impartial and unbiased. So that's really important and basically following the rule of law. So I know that one of my candidates is actual cross-filing like I am, and the other one is actually filing as a Democrat. Great. Just to close things out, I mentioned your website earlier, Van A. Scott Senior for MDJ.org. People can go there to find out more about you and your candidacy. You also have a Facebook page that I see you're updating regularly. Do you want to share a little bit about that with our listeners? Yeah, every every day or every couple days, we we. We share with the public exactly what's going on. You know, there's nothing to hide. We'll probably put something on uh, about the petitions being through and us being on the ballot. So we'll put something there. We'll, we'll put stuff out about meet and greet. We have a lot of events coming up where we're going to be uh, walking door to door and basically talking to residents and understanding and feeling where they're coming from. I've been doing it now myself door to door. It's been a, a rough couple weeks. And the reason why I say rough is because of the COVID and you know, the weather, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. crazy, snowing, and uh, my petition's getting wet and dropping them in the snow, and, you yeah. know, so uh, we, we, we've actually overcome a lot of boundaries, and, but if we're getting there, I'm excited right now, and you know what, we're, we're running our course, we're running positively every day, I have good people that are backing me, both Democratic and Republicans, it is what it is, and we're doing the right thing. So, I mean, I, I, I initially... When I first started the podcast, I said that I was everything that I shouldn't have been. Here's why I said that. I'm half Puerto Rican. I'm half black. I was born in poverty, grew up in the streets. I was raised by a family at a young age. I did not graduate from high school. 
and all above, I would equate to a poor, undereducated minority who just fell through the cracks of justice. I had to meet would be nothing but gloom. But you know what? With a strong mother, huge support, my family, teachers, other community members, and people that touched me and told me that I mattered, I was able to over overcome many obstacles and given the opportunity to give back to the community, I never turned my back on. So that this is a message I've always sought to offer the young people that I come in contact with, focusing on the district justice seat is probably coming a full circle in my life. I want to carry out the Constitution of Pennsylvania with fairness and impartiality. I was hoping I can continue making a difference to young adults, old adults, young children, and because I wanted to be everything they should not be. That's why I said that. Well, great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that personal history with us. Obviously, that's helped shape who you are as a candidate, and it's important for voters to have the the full picture. Transparency is, is super important today, obviously, more than ever with politics. So we really want to thank you so much for joining us and telling our listeners. I, mean, I got a little choked up there because, you know, it, it kind of hits to me my heart and it's a little bit of choking up there right, that I know that if I didn't have that whole family, that whole village to, mm-hmm. to raise me, that I know that, I mean, I have some friends that are actually incarcerated right now in prison, and I know for a fact that I'd probably be with them, and two of them are not with us anymore. Hmm. So I'm so grateful, and growing up again, and, and being who I was, I, I'm so grateful that I can give back, and this is, this will be the last, the last whatever you want to call it, the circle, my circle of life, so mm-hmm. kind of important. Well, like I said, it's, that's a great story and a true story and um, one that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to find inspiring, your personal story. Thank you again, again for joining us. I appreciate us. you, Josh. You, you guys have been awesome. Talking source and no rain date. You guys have been great. And I appreciate all the uh, assistance you have given me and the opportunity to speak and uh, to tell my story. Absolutely. We're, we're committed to covering local races and we'll be continuing to cover the district judge race in Fountain Hill and West Bethlehem. It's an important one and of course we want everybody to be registered to vote, participate in the election as it's your right to do. We'll talk to you again sometime, I'm sure. Okay, May 18th is important. Spread the word. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you.
No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Thank you.